Well, listen, we are in the midst of a series. It's about questions, all right? Uh, Last week, we talked about who am I? Who am I? There are three questions I want to answer in this series, questions that I need to know. I need answers to, and so does everybody. Last week, we asked the question, who am I? You see, many times we base who we are by our vocation, by our career, by our job. Some of us by the experiences that we had, whether positive or very negative. Some of us base our, um, our worth on our location, maybe the color of our skin, Maybe the amount of money or lack thereof in our bank account. Many of us value ourselves, place worth on ourselves by how others describe us. But listen, the only one, we found this out last week, the only one who can accurately define us is our maker. All right, you are the one, if you create a product so to speak, you are the one that gives it value. You are the one that can put a price tag. Now, whether other people agree or not is going to depend on whether they buy it, right? But it doesn't matter what other people say. What matters is, what does your maker say about you? And from our investigation, we find that according to God, we are someone of great value in God's eyes. To put it bluntly, God loves us. Listen, we don't love things that are uh, invaluable. I mean, va- uh, valueless. We don't, we, don't, we don't love things that are worthless. Well, others may say that, but not to us, right? So if God is willing to pour out his love on us, that says something. But listen, in case we get a big head, it's time to deflate a little of our air. Because listen, our value is not based in our deeds or our status. But our value is based solely on the God who made us. And if he says we are worth something, then that, that adds all the value we ever need. See, no one but God has the authority to determine my self-worth. No one. And he says, I am of great worth. Listen, on my own, not really. On my own, I am utterly dependent. I am a rebellious person. Spend some time, get to know me. You'll know that. I'm a sinful person and I am worthy of death. I really am. That's me in and of myself without Christ. But the beauty of the gospel is that it says that Jesus Christ, the God and our creator, he paid my enormous sin debt, my enormous sin payment to do what? To rescue me from death. And to give me life and a purpose. See, my greatest asset, it's not my brains. To which my family would go, ooh, that's true. Okay, it's not my brawn, okay? I'm getting weaker and weaker by the day. I'm experiencing that. There was once a time in my mid-20s where I was at my peak physical condition. That was a lifetime ago. And y'all know what I'm talking about. My worth is not based on my brains or my brawn or even my beauty. There was once a time when I was even... No, never mind. My greatest asset is Christ who loves me. I can boast in nothing else. So today's question. That was last week. Who am I? Today's question is this. Why am I here? Why am I here? Well, not just here in the room, although I believe that's not an accident. I I really don't. I believe that God has ordained this day to happen for you to be here. No matter who you are or who you think you are, 
I believe God is bigger than that. And he brought you for a great reason. Whether you came here excited, wanting to worship Jesus, or maybe you were tricked by a friend who said, hey, let's go out to breakfast. Oh, let me just make a detour, and now you're stuck here. Okay, I understand that could happen, all right? But I do not believe that you are here by accident, all right? But even bigger than that, the question we want to answer today is, why are you here on earth? Why are you here on earth today? That is a great question. How can you find out the answer to that? How can I know why I am here? Well, there are some options. Okay, there are some options that you have. I'm going to throw four options out to you on how you can know or how we think we can know why we're here. Okay, option number one is this. Look inside yourself. That's a great idea. Look inside yourself. Let me ask you a question, and I need some audience participation here, okay? How many of you have ever in your life been wrong? Raise your hand. Okay, about 80% of you. The other 20, y'all are amazing, okay? Y'all are absolutely amazing. All right, how many in here have ever been wrong about anything? Raise your hand. Awesome, still about 85%. Okay, we're going to move on, all right? Okay, listen, if you have ever been wrong in your life, then you are not You are not a good person to ask why you're here. Because it's very possible that if you try to seek the answer to why you're here within yourself, you'll be wrong. You're not a good subject. You're not a good test subject to answer that question. Scripture would say it this way in Proverbs 14, 12. We talked about it last week. There is a way that seems right to man. I know why I'm here. How'd you know? I I just contemplated it. I thought about it for a while. I know why I'm here. Well, the scripture says there is a way that seems right unto man, but its end is the way to death. We see this played out. All right? You see, Christianity versus all other religions, there's a big difference, okay? Or many differences. A lot of them deal with morality. A lot of them push love towards your neighbors. A lot of them push doing good and morality and all those types of things. But what makes Christianity different from other faiths is this. Number one, all other faiths say, I need to work my way into heaven, whatever that is. Christianity says, I can't. I need God to come down and take me. Okay, huge difference there. Huge difference. All other religions are birthed out of what's inside of man. This is what I think morality should be. This is what I think heaven should be. If you and I did not have the Bible and you were asked the question, how do you get to heaven? The the go-to answer for us is to work harder, to try to do more good than bad. That is the human response. That is what is inside of us. And it's subjective. It's gonna be a little different for each and every person. Listen, I can't base my eternity, I can't even base my 50, 60, 80, 90 years on earth on subjectivity. I want to live a life of purpose. I want to live a life of meaning. I don't want to have some fatalistic idea that it's nothing and just do the best you can and and that's it. That is a sad way to live. I don't want that, so I cannot look in and of myself. So that brings us to number two. Look to others. Look to others. The interesting thing about this one is this. There are always going to be smarter people than me, right? How many of you have ever met someone smarter than you? Raise your hand. This would be interesting. 
Okay, about 85%. All right, there's about 15% of y'all that aren't here. All right, hang with me, all right? Hang with me. Um, Think about that for a moment. There are always going to be smarter people than us. So with that, maybe that's a good idea to look to others. Okay, there are some people with, with more life experiences. There are more people, there are a lot more people with more information than I can ever have. But you see, the problem with this idea is that they all have a fatal flaw. Refer to number one. They're in the same boat you and I are in. Right? So if I can't look into myself, why would I dare go and look into some other flawed person to find true meaning for life? It's an exercise in futility. You see, even smarter people than us are in conflict as to what life's purpose truly is. And I cannot be wrong about this. I gotta know the truth. I gotta know why I live and move and have my being. I wanna live a life that matters. And if that's the case, if one and two don't work, then I have to find meaning outside of myself and outside of humanity. Which brings us to number three. Look to nature. That's a great idea. Let's look to nature. Look to the, to the, the natural, the, uh, the earth. Okay, look to uh, that st- the creation. All right, let's look to that. Let's look in test tubes. Let's try to figure out things from a naturalistic way. The problem with that, though, is that to the naturalist, however well-meaning he or she may be, they confess at best that they do not have an answer to ultimate purpose. I'd like to pull it up, but I just didn't have time to put it on the PowerPoint. There is a New York Times article, okay, that hasn't come out too long ago. It's called this. This is the title of the New York Times article. You can Google this. It's called, The Universe Doesn't Care About Your Purpose. Hey, let's, let's try that route, okay? That makes sense. In this article, it's actually pretty sad whenever you read this article. It's a very sad article. But here's the sad part is, this person who wrote this, smart person, not going to deny that, smart person, okay? The direction, though, is, is from a naturalistic perspective. That's where they want to find purpose. And this person lost a family member. And so he asks that question, what is the meaning of life? And he didn't want to go from any outside sources. He wanted to go to the naturalistic environment. And here's what he came up with. Near the end of the article, it says this. I will never see my papa again. Stop there for a minute. His dad passed away. And what he has come to find out is that he will never see his papa again. One day I will die. So will you. The T-Bird, the car that he had, it's going to decay along with everything, the universe, as the fundamental particles were made to return to the inert state in which everything began. What he's saying is basically everything is going to crumble up and die. And he says, entropy demands it. Now that's an interesting term, entropy demands it. He's saying this, if you look to the natural, life ultimately is 
worthless. Entropy is that term that means deterioration. From a naturalistic scientific perspective, there is a law called the second law of thermodynamics, which he talks about in this article. And it goes absolutely against evolutionary thinking. Because evolutionary thinking is this, everything begins in chaos and it slowly but surely comes into order. Well, the second law of thermodynamics scientifically says this, everything starts in order and it's constantly being uh, used, manipulated to disorder. Things are much crazier now than the beginning. It's absolute opposite of evolutionary thinking. So the the trap of naturalism is simply this. I'm going to do my best to not have any authority over me and I'm going to live the way I want, knowing for sure that there has to be something above us. Has to be something. If not, there is zero meaning for life. Another one, just to kind of add to this thought, there's a physicist named Lawrence Krauss. He had a recent book in, in this year, 2018, and the book is called this. The greatest story ever told, dot, 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 so far. The greatest story ever told so far. No, it's not a story about Christmas, okay? It is a book that is highly regarded in the naturalistic community. As a matter of fact, the book is praised on the very cover of it by uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, okay? In this book, he determines this. From looking at naturalism to find purpose in life, he says, we are a cosmic accident. And people who believe otherwise are probably suffering from some kind of religious delusion. What this means, what this means is, if you look to the nature itself, not listening to nature, but just observing nature, and just trying in your own mind to come up with, with, with purpose, with a reason for bring, bring, being, you will find none. But to the Christian, nature is not the end. Nature is a means to the end. Nature is a revelation of the one who does give life meaning and purpose. Psalm 119 says it this way. The heavens have a job to do. And their job is to scream, there is a God and it's not me. The heavens declare the glory of God. So if we worship nature, nature is saying, look harder. I did not begin in myself Look at the test tubes. It tells you I don't. Everything about me shows that there's a fingerprint. There is a glory of something bigger than me. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's what nature should tell us. Nature should tell us that you do not have Meaning and purpose inside of yourself or anything that is created. Which brings us to number four. We're we're running out of options here. The fourth one is this. We need to look to the words of the creator. We need to look to the words of the creator, i.e. the Bible. Here's what the Bible says about itself. Now at this point, you may be thinking, oh, 
You're going to throw the Bible in, huh? You're just going to let that happen. We're just going to all assume that the Bible is uh, something to be trusted, something to be relied upon. Listen, if, if Christianity was about me believing in something in order to make it true, then I am wasting my time. I'm going to say that again. If Christianity is based on me believing in something in order to make it true, I am wasting my time. But if it is true, then I need to spend my life looking towards it and believing in it. Okay? So with that said, we're going to look to the words of the Creator in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is what the Bible says about itself. All Scripture, the Word of God, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Meaning that the origin of this book is not in man. First Peter would say that. It's not in man. The origin of it is the very mind, heart, and mouth of God. And that word of God, that inspiration, that God breath, was miraculously and awesomely, if you're here on Wednesday nights, we kind of discuss things a little bit deeper here, but God uses his very word into human people like you and I to write his infallible, perfect word. And it says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable, okay? It's not worthless. It's of great worth. It's profitable for teaching. We need teaching. For reproof, I need to know when I'm wrong so that I can right my ship, okay? For correction and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, may the person of God, may we be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what I want. That's what I need. I need to know what is good and I need to chase after it. And according to the four options we have, only one, only one tells me following this way will be good. Will be not just good uh, most of the time. If we follow his word, it's every good work. I will be mature, I'll be complete, I'll be equipped for that. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and say from the beginning, the Bible makes some very monstrous monstrous claims about itself. It tells of the creation of the universe. It describes God, the creator and the ruler of all things, including the universe and you and I. The Bible proclaims that. It tells of humanity, how you and I really came into existence. How there's a necessity... Of it to begin with one man and one woman. The Bible declares that. There's no other options that are there. The Bible claims to be God's words reaching to human hearts and minds. Revealing his heart to us. The Bible shows us that if we were to trust in him. We can have a relationship with him. Think about that. You and God, me and God in a relationship forever. That's what the Bible proclaims. Listen, one commentator says it this way. If these claims are true, okay, let's just assume for the moment these things are true. If these claims are true about the Bible, then the Bible is the most important book in the history of mankind. If the Bible is true... Then it holds the answers to life's biggest questions. The importance of God's, uh, excuse me, the importance of the Bible's message demands 
that it receive fair consideration and the truthfulness of his message needs to be, for us to really believe it, must be observable, testable, and able to withstand scrutiny. What he's saying is this. The Bible says a whole lot of uh, monstrous things about itself. For us to actually believe it to be true, for us to, it's got to have some sort of test. Okay, we need that. We're all like Gideon, okay? In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Gideon. God spoke to him and said, you're going to be a mighty man. You're going to lead an army. And he's in his barn scared to death, okay? And so he's like, God, I'm going to need you to kind of prove yourself. Forgive me, but I need you to. And God does this awesome miracle in two days for this man to know that God was speaking truth to him. Okay, so there's truth right there, and here's us down here. We need to, to, to fit this gap. We need to have some assurances, some reliability on the Word of God in order to know about ourselves, okay? So let's go ahead and do this. Is the Bible true and reliable? How can we know that? Well, here's how. Number one, of all the books, the Bible is absolutely unique. I go ahead and listed them all out. There's a sixth one coming up later, but I just had that up there and I'm just going to talk for a while, okay? So hang with me, take some notes if you want. But listen, the Bible is unique. There is no other book like it. How many other books did it take 1,500 years to finish? That's one old author, right? <laughs> Actually, he's newer than you and I could imagine. Isn't that crazy? We think of God as this really old guy with a white beard and everything, thinking that somehow he's like really old. You might be kind of shocked. What is old, right? What is old to eternity? It took 1,500 years. There are over 40 authors of the Bible. 40 authors. And these authors dealt with all walks of life. Some of these were kings. Others were people in prison. Some were prophets. Some were farmers. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible, I say this a lot, is one of them, a guy named Amos says, listen, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I got something to tell you. Boom. And he tells uh, the nation of Israel what God's about to do. And you should read the book. It sounds a whole lot like the United States of America. But listen, all walks of life. And they wrote in a variety of places, from palaces to prisons, three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. These books were written, three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Okay, there were different moods. Some of them were, man, praise God, you're so awesome. Another one's like, God, if you don't come, I'm going to die. I need you right now. Help me, God. Uh, it's crazy. Some of them write in anger and frustration. Some of them write to God almost, almost with a fist up in the air saying, God, you owe me answers. And by the end of the book, I repent in dust and ashes. You are truly God. They're all, it's all over the place. There's a hundred, or more than that, there's hundreds of controversial subjects that many other religions don't even want to dare get into. God's not afraid of our, of our questions. He's not afraid of controversial subjects, and God writes it in there. And in the midst of all that we just talked about, 1,500 years, 40-plus authors in all different locations, nationalities, there is total continuity in every book of the Bible. What does that tell you? That tells you that, listen, there is ultimately one author. The Holy Spirit himself guided the hands of his people 
for his glory so that we can have a Bible, which brings us to number two. The Bible is recorded accurately. Listen, there's a lot, and we talked about this again on Wednesday night, so uh, just for time's sake, I want to hit a couple of things. Listen, the people who wrote this Bible were actually eyewitnesses to the events in real time. All right, when you read in the book of uh, First John, for example, John is writing contemporarily. He's not writing hundreds of years in the past saying, I think this is what happened, so we'll just kind of make that go. All right, think about it. In First John chapter 1, verse 1, John was one of the disciples. He walked with Jesus. And listen to what he says in 1 John 1, 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning Jesus, the word of life. John is saying, listen, I'm not just hoping so. All right? I'm not just going to believe in something to make it true. I was there. I was there when Jesus healed people. I was there when Jesus wept. I was there when he passed the bread and the cup. I was there when he kept saying that he was going to die for my sins and I couldn't believe or understand it until he rose again. These are eyewitnesses to the accounts. That brings much weight. So much weight than in a court of law back in the Old Testament times. You needed two or more witnesses. You know what God did? He gave us four. That's how awesome he is. All right? I mean, that's just crazy. That is insane. Uh, the, the other thing is, not only they're eyewitnesses, the authors themselves, the authors and the people in the stories, they appealed to the knowledge of the audience. With great detail. Think about this. In the book of Acts, Luke writes, and this is so cool. Peter is preaching to a multitude of people. Listen to what Peter says. Okay, in Acts chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Listen to this. He says in a sermon to all these thousands of people who've gathered around. He says this. Jesus, whom you delivered over. So the people know exactly what he's talking about. Jesus, whom you've delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. You denied God. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What was that murderer's name? Barabbas. Remember that story? This is, this is the Easter story. And so they asked for a murderer to be released instead of the son of God. And listen, listen to what he says. And you, you audience, you who are here today, you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead to this were witnesses. He just spoke to the very people who knew exactly what he was talking about. If he was speaking lies, there would be, there would have been many other books that would have said, I was there and he's wrong. Okay? Journalism didn't just happen when Donald Trump became president. All right? Okay? People had opinions back then too. If they were wrong, we would know it. Because they would have squashed Christianity like a bug on the very first year. But they didn't. As a matter of fact, the opposite happened. There is a, a Jewish historian, no claims for Christianity. He was born in AD 37. So about three, four years after Jesus died and rose again. Okay, So this guy was a contemporary. His name is Josephus. That's a cool name. Any pregnant people in here? That would be a cool name for your son. Josephus. 
That's awesome. But anyways, he's a Jewish historian, no claims to Christianity. He writes this in his book called Antiquities, okay? So this is first century book here. He says this, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. A, a extra biblical historical document proclaiming the truth of Jesus. Okay, listen to this. But those who had become his disciples did not, even though he was condemned, did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah. What? Concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders and the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. That is a, a secular historian who is saying, here's what's going on in the world today. There's Jesus. He, he's proclaimed to be alive and there's no one denying it. Perhaps he's the Messiah. That is insane. I'm going to read one more quote uh, from a, a commentator. He says this, Extreme measures were taken to ensure that the copies of the original works were made with precision and accuracy. Meaning this, with the Bible that you have in your hand, we don't have the originals, okay? Time, weather, all that stuff has decayed those things down, all right? What we have in our hand, though, we can be absolutely sure is the word of God, not only because of the fact that we have an almighty God that preserves his word, because we would say, well, that's a simple answer. But the proof is that those people who did write down from the originals till today called scribes, okay, they wrote down, they had specific disciplines. Again, that's Wednesday night for you. They had specific disciplines to know uh, with absolute accuracy to write word for word, line for line, period for period, that we know that the word of God is what it is. And you're saying to yourself, well, can you give me some proof of that? Well, okay. Um, before 1948, the earliest copy we had of the Old Testament was A.D. 900. So a thousand, almost a thousand years after Christ. So we, we did our best with that, okay? We, we're going to assume that that's as accurate as it possibly can be. Well, then in 1948, what happened? The Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have heard of that on different uh, history channel and all that kind of stuff. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were uh, uncovered, what they did was they pulled out those scrolls of the Old Testament. They lined them up with our earliest document. And by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written 200 B.C. So 200 B.C. to 900 A.D., that's 1,100 years apart. And they say, except for some punctuation errors, they say the same thing. What that tells us is that what we have in our hands, every one of us, we have a reliable document. To which some of you, well, wait a minute, which is the best translation? The best translation is the red one, so read it, Okay? Accurate. It's written. So, with all that said, we have a very reliable document, which brings us to the next point. It's reinforced externally. Extra biblical literature, just like Josephus, okay? The Bible is the most quoted book in history. 
Christians and non-Christian authors quote it even as early as the first century. But not only that, listen, there are a lot of people who 15, 1800 years removed decide we got a better idea. We're going to go ahead and call it false and then keep digging in the ground to prove it's false. Every time a shovel goes into the ground, it proves the Bible to be accurate. The book of Luke, for example... There was a lot of different people uh, that were mentioned in the book of Luke that we had no historical record of before uh, the 1900s. And so it was, it was given that Luke must be a fake gospel, okay? We didn't know about some sort of census when Quirinius was governor or even Pontius Pilate. Those names, we don't have any information. Let's keep digging and keep proving that Bible wrong. Well, they kept bunk, bunk. Well, guess what they found? A rock with Pontius Pilate's name on it. A rock with 4 BC, a guy named Quirinius, who was governor, uh, called for a census from Caesar himself. So the Bible, every time we dig, listen, Christians, if we keep quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. The Bible is proving itself. It's being proved constantly that it's reliable. And that brings us to uh, one of the greatest uh, evidences of all, and that's Jesus' testimony. Jesus, in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead, the Bible says, he said to some disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What Jesus just said is this whole Bible, because they're writing the New Testament at this time, but everything of the Old Testament is God's word. And it's proved that. And Jesus himself, who says he's God, by the way, And if God says that the Bible is reliable, guess what? I'm going to go with that. With everything that we've talked about, I'm going to go with that. And so then I say to myself, if that's true, if the Bible is true and now I'm getting to that point where I'm walking up to the truth of God's word, I'm glad to know that God is not just facts alone. God is a relational God, which is what I desperately need. I need a relationship with God. You can't build a relationship on facts. You need a person. And you know what the Bible does? The Bible, number six, the Bible reflects its author. The Bible reflects its author. In Psalm 19, the scripture says, speaking of the Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect. Well, of course it is. God is perfect. And everything he says is going to be Yeah, perfect, right? Okay. And, and it's perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Well, of course it is. If it's the word of God, it's going to be sure. It's going to be sure. Making wise the simple. Listen, I'm a simple person. I want to get wisdom. I need to get in the word. The precepts of the Lord are right. Well, who is God? He is right. He's right in all ways. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the, Lord is, of the Lord is pure. How is God? He's pure. We're getting there. <laughs> Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. God is clean. He is perfect. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. The Bible, from what we've seen here, is the word of God. And God ensured it to be reliable and true. Something that I can trust. Knowing this. Knowing this, now I can begin to know who I am and what I'm here for. So with that said, let's read. If you have your Bible, um, it is going to be on the screen, but I want you to turn, uh, because I want you to really 
scratch through, not scratch through, but I mean, underline, uh, take notes if you want to. This is what the Bible says about us, okay, why we're here. Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 8. It's kind of near the end of the book of the Bible. Titus chapter 3. Listen to what the scripture says for us. If now we can rest on that fact that it's true, it's the word of God, it's reliable. On everything that it can be proven, it has proven itself to be faithful. Now we can get into the spiritual and into the, to the here and now. Listen to what it says. <clears throat> for we ourselves, Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know what? That, that just described me to a T. And if you're honest, it described you as well. Again, the Bible is revealing itself to be true, not just in math, not just in science, not just in history, not just in facts, but it's speaking to my very heart. God is a relational God and he's speaking to my soul and what he says I agree with because I live that. That's me. And then it says, but. Love that. That means there's a change going on. This is what I once was, but listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that by being justified by His grace, His undeserved favor, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Are you kidding me? Right there, if we were to stop there, the Bible just described who I was. And for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are His. They are inheritors of, of all of eternity. They are, they are recipients of His grace, His forgiveness, His love, His mercy, His ever presence, his life in each one of us. And we know that we're going to spend forever with him in heaven. With that said, he says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want to insist these things to you that those who have believed in God and are recipients of all that stuff, you've, you've been given everything you need, not only for this life, but for the next. Because of that, let's be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Are these good works to inherit, to inherit heaven? No, that was bought for us by Christ. But now he's telling us why we're here today. We must be careful to devote ourselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Listen, if you have received Christ, you have been given everything you need to live in this crazy earth and to live in the next life. It's done for me. If that's true, then why didn't the moment I received Christ, I died? Because God has a purpose for me here. And guess what it is? To make disciples. To cause other people to experience the grace and mercy of God that I received and that you received. So that's why he says, do good works. They're profitable, not for you anymore. They're profitable for others, for people. So get out there and live Christ. 
show Christ. Be Christ to a lost and dying world. That's what we're here for. Ephesians 2.8 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For here it is, now today, what are we here for? He says, for we are his workmanship. We are his poema, his work of art. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only is God calling us to do good works, but God, I'm scared. What you're calling me to do, I know it's good, but I'm kind of fearful of that path. God says, I've already been there. I've already laid out that path for you. You will not be alone. I'm not going to promise that you won't have scars in your life. I'm not going to promise that you're going to have dangers, toils, and snares. That you're going to be crushed. But you will never be alone. And I promise what I began, I'm going to complete. We have the precious promises of God that we cannot get away from. We cannot get away from. And that's, that's awesome. Which brings us to Matthew 28, 20, church. The heartbeat of why we're here. Jesus says for us as followers of Christ, disciples, to go therefore. This is your calling. Make disciples of all nations. Okay? We have an intent purpose. Okay? We are to be intentional people. Just like we saw last week with one of our youth workers, Emily, and just simply inviting. You know, I heard a statistic that nine out of 10 people outside of the church, nine out of 10 of them would come if they were just invited. That's crazy. Let's prove it. <laughs> right? Let's prove it. We got, we got invite cards here. In the, you know, invite people to come and hear next week. Next week's sermon, where are we going? How do we know that? Okay. Oh, it's so crucial for all of us to know these things. But listen, we need to be like that. We need to be intentional like our youth workers and invite people so they can hear. We need to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, we are all uh, we're the priesthood of believers. The pastor doesn't do the work of the church. We equip us for the work of the church. Which means this, I'm going to be so crazy and bold as to say this. If you bring someone to church and they get saved, you're going to be the one to baptize them. You're going to be the one to baptize them. Why in the world would I want to be on some sort of a podium and, and some, some hype? No, 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 no. God blessed you and so you follow that person through in discipleship. Amen? We need to be people who disciple people. We don't just check off a list they've been evangelized and say our work is done. Are you kidding? Kenny would say our work has just begun. So there we are. What these verses tell us is that I was once an enemy of God, living ultimately a purposeless life. But when God saved me, guess what? He gave me a reason to live to glorify Him, to do good for the sake of others, and to prepare myself. And those around me for eternity. Church, we need to be that type of people. If God's word is true and we believed it to save us, then we need to believe it in our daily walk. Amen? If we want to do good for others, we're going to do a special offering at the end of service. Okay? A special offering. And here's what it is. It is a special holiday offering. Because here's what we need. We need these 150 boxes to get out of here. 
all the work that our small groups did to put together all these boxes and to get them as full as they are, they do absolutely nothing staying here. Amen? They need to go overseas. They need to go to Papua New Guinea. They need to go to Ukraine. They need to go all over the place so that kids can hear the gospel. But they're not going to get there on their own. Church, we need over $1,000 to get these boxes away. That's like $9 a box for all that shipping. But it's not just shipping. Don't think, oh, nine bucks for shipping. Can't we get a better deal from the U.S. Postal Service? You can't think of it that way. $9 covers the shipping. It covers the gospel uh, information that's going to be put in there. It's going to cover these missionaries getting that stuff out there to these kids and any other type of special fees. So they lumped it into $9. That's a good deal. $9 to get this box on the other side of the the world to hear the gospel. But not only that, church, we have something local right here. We have the privilege next month of feeding a hundred families a Christmas dinner. A hundred families through our food pantry program. Our food pantry budgets, it's it's getting uh, short. It's about wiped out. And so what we want to do, we we do not want families in in our ministry to go hungry. So what we're going to do is we're going to take up an offering and we need $2,000, $1,800 to $2,000 to cover these boxes going overseas and 100 families being fed and it's $2,000. I don't know if that comes up to maybe $20 a family. I don't know. I'm not good at math, okay? But I do know this. We need to do what it takes. We need, we, we've been given everything that we need. These people need that opportunity as well. So, let me reel it back in. Josh McDowell, who, by the way, a great youth speaker, and a lot of the information I got comes from him, but he says this in a quote, The Bible reveals the heart of God. God is telling us how he feels about himself and us. If I can paraphrase, God is saying this. Everyone in here, listen. God is saying, I want a relationship with you. And in that relationship, I want you to know me, And to be like me. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. To know him and to be known by him. Another commentator says it this way. Speaking of the Bible. When the Bible is put to the test. The Bible is proved true in every area. And that truth extends to the spiritual as well. That means that when the Bible says that some Hittite nation existed then we can believe that there are Hittites. And the Bible then teaches all have sinned, the wages of sin is death, then I need to believe that too. Everything that we can prove about the Bible is proven to be true. So on the things that need to be taken by faith, guess what we do, church? We take them by faith, knowing that there's a God who never lies and always keeps his promise. So the Bible, church, guests, is more than a religious book. It is more than a book of morals. It is literally... God's letter to you and I. It's his words of hope, peace, and life for all of those who would believe. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father God, to think that you 
the creator of all things, bigger, mightier, righter, holier, greater than I could ever think or imagine, to think that you would want an audience with us. And God, not only do you want an audience, God, you want to you save us. You want to adopt us. You want to make us yours. God, I believe you want to do that today. Maybe there's someone in here who now has, has, has kind of heard the, the veracity, the truth of your word, God. And maybe for the first time they believed it. And by doing so, they believe that you are Jesus, the Son of God. That you are their Savior. And they want to call upon you this morning. God, please give them the courage and the strength mm-hmm. to call on your name in saving faith. God, help them to know that they're not alone. That there will be people right here in the front. Uh, just normal, ordinary people like us. Who want to pray with them. Who want to show them from scripture. Maybe ask or answer some questions. Just to be a friend of them during this time. God help us Lord. To have the courage and strength to follow you. God I pray for. For people like me. Who have already received Christ. But God I have forgotten how. Important your word is in my life. And because of that. I have forgotten my purpose. They keep thinking it's about. Another dollar. I keep thinking it's about uh, another project. I keep thinking it's about another kid or another uh, scholarship or another trophy. Thank you, God, for reminding us today that our life's purpose is bigger than all that. Our purpose begins here and never ends. Speak to every one of us. We beg you. Jesus, our purpose.